I'm talking today with Dr. Katina Michael, a professor at the University of Wollongong in the School of Information Systems and Technology. She's previously been employed as a senior network engineer at Nortel Networks, and she's also worked as a systems analyst at Anderson Consulting and Otis Elevator Company. Katina is someone I heard speak recently at an industry conference on the bigger issues that we should be talking about as we look to increased use of technology, um, the growth of things like Google Home and Amazon Alexia, and, and whether or not there's a questions of privacy that we should be looking at from a bigger issue. So, Katina, I'm really glad to have you on the phone today. Thanks so much, Rachel. I'd like to start off uh, by asking you to tell me a little bit more about your work in area of specialization. Well, uh, I really began my research career around 1997, and I was strongly interested in new technologies, emerging technologies, while I was working in telecoms, and I could see the future uh, engagement being in things like not just mobility through smartphones, but brain-to-computer interfaces. And even at that time, we were talking about brain-to-brain interfaces facilitated by implantable devices in the body that could be interconnected via our current network infrastructure. And then I started to think about, well, what would this mean for how people communicate? What would this mean about uh, the reliability and resilience of our networks and their importance? And, and what are the social implications? And I, I think I dedicated a great part of my research study uh, while I was doing my PhD to technological trajectories. What is the roadmap? Where are we going? Why are we going this way? And what's propelling us towards that future? So how does this apply? And, and, and how, how are these big themes playing out uh, in, in what you're examining today? It's very interesting. I think uh, I've personally underestimated the speed of change uh, despite that I'm well aware of uh, Moore's Law, and uh, I was very much indoctrinated in Moore's Law while I was working in industry. And I think increasingly what we're seeing is not just the rapidity of new technologies coming out, and Ray Kurzweil has written about this greatly in his Law of Accelerating Returns, but rather the convergence. And what came out in my research through my PhD was this notion of convergence and coexistence. I, I really well understood this in the theory of innovation, like what drives people to innovate. But what I think I underestimated was the cohesion between very disparate disciplines coming together in a converging way and really an unleashing of power. And we can see this through artificial intelligence, mathematics and computing power, of course, traditionally has been a force to be reckoned with. But now additional robotics that possibly could be uh, fused with artificial intelligence to embody chatbots, to embody algorithms and neural network approaches to solving complex problems and, and, and embodied in, in some interface through some physical or software uh, interface. We talk about this an awful lot um, as being sort of the next industrial revolution. I mean, obviously, I imagine there's a lot of potential benefits to be unlocked on uh, with this sort of convergence that you're talking about. But what should we be wary about, and what should be what should we be looking at as members of societies, as members of economies, and you know, as individuals as well? I think we need to be wary of the use value of our developments. I think a lot of tech is being propelled out there because we can. Mm -hmm. And because we can, we will. And we'll see how far we go. And, and you know, it, it was the philosophy that was quite embedded in many organizations in the 90s before the dot-com crash uh, that said, build and they will come. And that mentality hasn't completely gone. Uh, we see a lot of 
a prototyping, rapid prototyping and, and crowdsourced funding, supporting new, very snazzy, sort of sexy devices out there. And they're just another gadget, as far as I'm concerned. I speak to lots of various demographics, and yesterday I had the chance to speak to an elderly group, and I asked them about robotics and care and assistive technologies, and most of them said, we don't want humans to be replaced, but we do want assistive tech. And so when we're talking about perhaps sexual partners in the form of humanoid robots, is there really a need, and is that a niche? And if it's a niche, all good and well, you know, for those people who want to engage in that kind of behavior. But as a society, should we be engaged in that kind of behavior? Is there any space that we say, well, that's we're, we're going a bit too far? You know, if, if I wanted to build a replica of myself and ingest it with my memories and all my emails and the way I write and the way I converse and, and the way I act and behave, do I want my replica to take care of me when I'm older? You know, do we engage with such philosophical questions which are now actionable through various um, institutes around the world and soon to be commercialised, might I add, or do we say, you know, that's going a little bit too far and and what is really important? I, I'm, I'm concerned that we're missing the point, we're being distracted by the bells and whistles and and we're not investing, for example, in technology for the disabled. And I'm not talking about exoskeletons here, I'm talking about everyday things that help people who are disabled, for instance, have a better quality of life, whether that's audio environmental responses to, to their voice uh, activation uh, or other things that facilitate them to have a progressive life. I think we're missing the point. And so we're putting Google Home devices in every home. And ultimately, these may well be used by the disabled, but I think we're going, around, we're going about it the opposite way. You know, we're looking for the mass production and mass adoption rather than where is the need and how can we facilitate that? This idea of build it and it, uh, they will come um, isn't just, it's, it's not limited just to the development of the technology industry, obviously. It's sort of the gestalt of capitalism writ large, I suppose. So I suppose what we're sort of asking companies and investors and stakeholders or citizens is to do something that's quite counterintuitive to the way economic value has been measured. Uh, for, for a particularly long time. How do you start those conversations? Because one of the things that I focus on in the magazine is the ways in which investors specifically engage with companies on large social, environmental, and governance issues. That's a great question, Rachel. I was speaking to somebody uh, this morning, Pat Scannell from the States, and we were actually asking each other this very same question. How do we engage the public with such big questions. And I think these big questions can't be answered quickly. I think they require multidisciplinary skill sets to come together and really high impact. I'm not talking about the Elon Musks of this world or the Stephen Hawking. I'm talking about people in corporates, everyday corporations that perhaps are not CEOs or COs or CFOs. They're, they're, they're lower down the food chain, so to speak, but have the operational awareness to say, well, these are the problems we're facing. Perhaps it's information overload. Perhaps it's a, a workforce that's being pressured or, or pressured to reskill, pressured to upskill, pressured in various ways. And we need people from the neuro side to the psych side, to the medical side, to the fundamental technological side to come together and say, well, what are the big problems we're facing? I think sustainability is a perfect place to be hosting this discussion in, because it's not just sustainability of the environment, but it's sustainability of ourselves. I would say almost the human race. And sustainability to look, as I said in last week's uh, Climate Change Summit, 
it's not just to get that perfect spreadsheet coming out with all the right numbers. It's to bring the brains together. And, and it's a global initiative that can say, well, let's not worry so much about the perfect numbers, but where is it that we see ourselves in 100 years, in 500 years from now? And they're very difficult questions to answer, but we need to have a clearer roadmap and not one that's based on pure economics. Mm. It almost seems as though this question's being siloed in sort of the arts and entertainment industry. You know, when you were talking about sexual partners and robotics, you know, I was thinking about Westworld and some of these, you know, technology and privacy issues through the lens of the dark mirror. So it's clear that a part of our society is trying to grapple with these big questions, but it's that convergence hasn't quite happened yet where it's hit sort of the investing or the corporate decision-making lens as yet. Exactly. And and for, for now, our data is actually siloed. Our very selves, our digital trail is siloed within corporations, whereas we need to unlock that value and place it in the individual and in their power. So right now we subscribe to platforms and we are loyal perhaps to Google, to Amazon, to LinkedIn, to Twitter, Instagram, wherever we place bits and pieces of our very selves. And that digital trail can say a lot about us, about us. In fact, I would say it tells us more about ourselves than we know about ourselves down to the micro level. And that data can be used for or against us. It can be used to enhance us and recommend to us things that we would find of value, but it can also be used to manipulate us and exploit us. And I think where we're seeing the next 100 years is perhaps in the empowerment of that data within the hands of everyday citizens that have then a choice whether they part with it for value, and it could be monetary, or they decide to cling to it. But I think the importance of the privacy aspect is in our ability to have freedom and autonomy, because once privacy is taken away from us, our autonomy is diminished, and our freedom is somewhat questionable. Right now, I argue we still have our privacy, although if we continue down the path that we're on, I think that will be severely eroded. And I'm talking about creep, scope creep, and function creep, where we're introducing so-called monitoring devices for environmental reasons into our homes. And that could be for sustainability, or it could be for voice-activated everything so that, you know, human activities can be recorded and then used to enhance our experience of life. But my concern is once these platforms embedded through Internet of Things kinds of approaches in our homes, then we will not only diminish our privacy, but diminish our human rights in so doing this practice. I'm really glad you brought up that privacy point because I wanted to try and go through this with you and try and apply sort of an investment or a corporate lens to it. I was reflecting on my own behavior and how it's evolved sort of over recent years. You know, I I don't think I'd tell my best friend face-to-face how much I weigh, but I'm on fitness apps on my iPhone and I've linked my weight and my caloric intake, my fitness activities in a way where strangers who I'm friends with or friends that I'm friends with on this platform can see a lot of my day-to-day personal activity that I wouldn't really want to share in a face-to-face way. And that sense of empowerment and that sense of creep. Have we devoted enough time, either as individuals or as societies or as economic actors, talking about the value of this privacy and the value of this personal information? I think we talk a lot about it. Uh, We find it difficult to operationalize in a structured manner with which we can act. And so we find ourselves in paradoxical situations where we're talking privacy, but we have, you know, a stream of loyalty cards in our wallets, or we uh, understand intimately the importance of privacy, but then, as you say, uh, subscribe to 
uh, health and well-being services that need to know uh, certain aspects about us so that they can recommend for us uh, ways of living. I, I, I read yesterday in IEEE Spectrum that we now have a stomach-based Fitbit system, you know, a Fitbit <laughs> for the stomach, um, which is the internalization, yeah, sure. really. Yes, it's the internalization of this. We call it ubervalence, my husband and I, uh, in our research. <laughs> and it's it's the embedded surveillance. It is okay when we trust the source of where it's stored, but once that technology and once that data is manipulated in a way to say, well, you know what, you're a great customer of ours and, and you do everything we recommend and you've lowered, you know, your cholesterol from what you eat and you've you've increased your number of steps per day. You know, your your premium, congratulations, your premium is going to go down. Yeah. And and that's all good and well. But I then presented at a banking innovation conference last Tuesday where I said, look, Alipay is great in China at KFC, you know. Customers go in, they can use their face. And, and I said, but let's think about this. Right now, what we have is Alipay trialing even the ability to predict what you'll buy at KFC in China and then offering you a fast track way to go through. And I said, well, that's good because, you know, then, then they know how many calories you're intaking. And perhaps if you visit KFC four times a day, they might say, we'll cap it the third, fourth and fifth time because you've already had your total calorie intake. And we're being a good corporate citizen here. And et cetera, et cetera. You know where I'm going with this. But I think we have a controlling aspect to that as well if we go down that kind of path, which a lot of companies are instituting and promoting. Sure. I mean, you know, from the from the corporate perspective, they could be saying, you know, we're we're good corporate actors, we're taking on the the health risks of, of obesity and acting proactively to limit people's access to our product. It'd be interesting to see the circumstances in which a company would voluntarily cap its provision of service. But um... yes, yeah, very interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Unless it's linked to incentives, because what we're gonna see are deeper value chains. So what we see at the moment, we see handsets and then we see a bank. And then we see a health service, but actually underlying these services will be a very complex mesh value chain. And so your handset provider will likely be your insurer. And people don't realize uh, companies like Samsung, for instance, are health insurance providers under another guise. So we really have no awareness of the intimate, complex relationships that are corporations and their third-party resellers, uh, you know, their affiliates, uh, their subsidiaries. Look at Alphabet, Google's parent company now, 23andMe and the complexity there and even retail stores in Australia. You know, we don't go around trying to sift through like who's got relationships with whom. We just take it at face value because all we want is a service to work and achieve our aim. But the complexity of the value chain behind our services is growing because of fintech, regtech, you know, health tech, agri-tech, everything. You know, we don't know who's who in the zoo anymore. Mm, mm, mm. And when you talk about the concept of the deeper value chain, as it intrudes upon the individual sphere or what we've perceived historically as the individual sphere, you know, companies have an opportunity motive, but they have a risk mitigation motive as well. So they may be making decisions that intrude upon the person's sense of self based on a risk mitigation strategy. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think citizens are waking up. Consumers are certainly waking up. This will come with transparency and more transparent, as you say, corporate actors. But at the same time, trust is, I think trust is the underlying thing. When, when we studied to look at whether citizens in Australia, for instance, would allow emergency services to access their location-based coordinates during an emergency, we found that people were more concerned about trust than even privacy. So if I trust the provider, I'd give them everything. But the problem is we have seen too many examples where corporate actors 
have acted um, irresponsibly. And so that is one of the issues we need to clean up our act. It's very hard to do that because humans are fallible. Corporations are fallible because they're made up of humans. Sure. And there's always unintended consequences. You know, if Donald Rumsfeld has done anything positive, you know, giving us that phrase of the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, a lot of the actions that were the impacts that we feel now are the result of unintended decisions or unintended consequences taken a decade ago or two decades ago. It's fascinating that you talk about that. I ran a special issue with Ramona Pringle and M.G. Michael on the social implications of unintended consequences. Fascinating to go back and to look at Rumsfeld's rhetoric, you know, and there were the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. Yeah. But he left a one category out because really it's a quadrant. It's not just three parts of a puzzle. And what he left out was it's the unknown knowns. When we know that something in our guts may actually occur, but we still go ahead and do it. And that's the part of the puzzle that he left out because it suited him in his rhetoric. But I'm worried that most of us in industry, most of us in government, most of us in in stakeholders that, that are important for service offerings, sometimes we know what the intended consequences may be. We anticipate them, but we go, well, stuff it. We'll just keep going because anyway, we're going to make millions and this is what I want us to really have a good check on. I think when you bring brands together from global uh, stakeholders, and they're both public, private enterprise, uh, NGOs and government stakeholders, when you bring people together in an authentic way to discuss what do we anticipate in our guts that we know will likely happen, and yet we're still going ahead, and should we? And of course, we don't know unintended consequences, which could be beneficial as well. Uh, note that today. But... When we have a gut feeling and we have some evidence towards that gut feeling, why still go down that path? It's like beckoning problems to occur, even though you think the short-term gain is worth it, but the long-term gain is not. Mm. I'm sure the founders and managers of Facebook and Twitter, for example, had a clear view that there would be exploitation of their algorithms for certain consequences, but they decided to go ahead anyway. And now we're left in a, we have a circumstance of fake news and sort of destruction of the perception of information-based reality even. And how serious is that, Rachel, when people are making economic investment decisions based on fake news? And, you know, I find that even in my own behavior as a researcher, I have to stop myself and hesitate on occasion when I read a wonderful headline. headline. And the speed of uh, information change and movement, I mean, you know, the half-life, for instance, of a Twitter message used to be like 24 minutes, and now it's like, you know, between 8 and 12 minutes. After that, nobody remembers it ever again. So, so we're not reading intently and deeply. We're rushing. And it's not just in our methodologies. It's even in our own, like, assessment of things and decisions. So I'll make a decision based on a headline. Actually, the market might move that fast in a perceived manner. But we've got to read in more detail because the fine print is what's going to get us in the end, I think, beyond the headline. It's what are we signing up to? What are we really agreeing to? It sounds good, but what are they really saying? Mm -hmm. And then if you have um, you know, artificial intelligence-assisted uh, <laughs> algorithmic, you know, algorithmic investing that you know makes a decision on whether to buy or, or sell a stock based My off of headline churn, you know, you've got a self, you've got a self-feeding prophecy right there, don't you? Isn't it? And I think that bubble might burst. You are so right. I mean, <laughs> I've thought about that very often. Yeah. And, it's like an endless loop. And then in the end, you know, you try to get out of it and you can't, you know, something crashes as a result of that. It's a, it's a downward spiral, potentially. I hope not. It's an interesting consideration, though, especially, you know, with the, the subject of, you know, machine learning, that the, the machine only learns as well as you program the data set for it to scan. 
So, uh, oh, totally. Yeah. You know, I was reviewing a paper yesterday on AI and society, and uh, somebody said to me, well, the authors are making the argument that the problems that we have today with smartphones and addiction and this speed thing, we can just solve it with AI. And he said, I find that argument cyclical. Like, I can solve the problem of AI you know, that are caused with AI, and then you go, well, that doesn't really make sense. Don't have it to begin with, and then you won't have the problem. And so we throw technology at problems. Potentially, they solve the problems, but they have side effects, externalities, and ripple effects, and we don't measure those ripple effects. They're complex things to measure and complex things to discuss. And, you know, we've all worked in corporations. No one's got time to, you know, everyone wants something yesterday. No one's going to sit around for three months going, I wonder if we should really do that, but we have to. That's how we used to work prior to the dot-com crash. That's how we used to work when voice was voice and data was data. Um, and today we don't work like that because our tools, our medium allow us perhaps to generate more, to remotely generate through space and time, through time zones. You know, people never sleep, you know, or the world doesn't sleep anymore, but we used to sleep. And we need that time out. Sometimes that boredom, that hesitation, that time to reflect is exactly what we need to make a good decision, not the opposite. I, I wonder myself whether or not it, it there will eventually become sort of, because, you know, I'm looking through some of this through sort of a slightly narrowed eye, the, the eye of investing in corporate activity, you know, whether we put an explicit value um, on privacy and personal information and that personal space, uh, that ability of the brain to analyze information as a way of capturing some of the complexity of that? It's classic what you're saying. Um, we termed that rather than basing it in an aspect of privacy, we, we looked at models that looked at the price of security. It was one of my PhD students about 15 years ago. And we looked at the price of security. It's really what's used to determine the trade-off that needs to be made when a, a new technology or a new app is implemented as a solution for something like national security or, or or something. So it was, can we measure the price of security? So it wasn't really based in privacy terminology, but I do hear the wonderful voices like Anne Kavukian that keep saying it's not a zero something. It's not an either or. We have to get out of this complexity or the simplicity, I should say, which is, is a trade-off between privacy and security. I remember one IBM scholar saying to me, you know, start talking about harmony rather than trade-off because I don't believe in trade-off. And how do we quantify that? Do we quantify it or is it implicit? I don't know. I mean, implicitly, as a philosophical point or as a point of discussion at a social level, I think, you know, we, we implicitly judge. I think you're right. It's not a trade-off. It's a spectrum. Do I give up a little bit of my privacy here to gain an incremental amount of security there? But I don't do it in other circumstances. But I wonder, you know, in the way that we've quantified certain, you know, externalities like carbon emissions or, you know, goodwill, and we've turned those into numbers that can be calculated and therefore valued in a profit and loss statement, does privacy, personal information, personal space become something that gets valued as well, particularly when we're talking about platforms like Facebook or Twitter who make their money off of our eyeballs and our ability and willingness to sort of trade off our privacy for access? That's a, a classic statement. I think we should be quantifying to some extent. I mean, we quantify everything else that we can s describe in variables or dimensions in spreadsheets and, and business cases and business plans. One of the things I've been looking at more recently is how quantifying something sometimes opens the door to, I won't say cheating exactly, but perhaps uh, tick boxing. And so once we quantify something, we can go... 
we can hide numbers. That's the problem with numbers. And, you know, we made our privacy guidelines and the expected benchmark for privacy because, look, I can show you. We did an assessment, an independent assessment through a consulting company, and they said we not only complied, but we actually were above what we needed to be. And look at us, we're so great. I don't go away from quantifying privacy, but I'm worried about tick boxing and compliance and nobody's really reading the fine print to say, now what are we really saying about privacy? And you know, we see this happening with carbon emissions, the countries that, that subscribe to the Kyoto and so forth. My concern, however, is what about the qualification of things? We need to quantify because that's how corporations work. But at the same time, what's that clause in there that says, yes, they comply. Yes, on the quantifiable scale, their benchmarks have been reached, you know, the global benchmarks we've set. But then how do we know? How do we really know they're actually doing what they're saying they're doing? And so I don't want organisations to have like an escape clause. And sometimes compliance is an escape clause. I, I don't know how to say that more clearly. Oh, look, Katina, I could talk to you for hours and hours. But alas, I think I've got to cut this one off here. So I just want to thank again Dr. Katina Michael, a professor at the University of Wollongong, for talking to me a lot about how some of these these very uh, metaphysical or philosophical points have very serious ramifications for you know the decisions we make from an investment point of view or from a business point of view. So thank you very much, Katina. Thanks, Rachel. What a fantastic list of questions. Appreciate it.